So today, um, I'm really, most of the sermon is me just sharing a, a personal testimony, a story from mine and Brooke's life, which, after leading this ministry for five years and being involved in it for over ten, is a lot of your story, too. Um, we'll get to the testimony part, but big picture today, we're talking about um, life and death. We're going to be talking about the, the inseparable relationship between sorrow and joy. The sorrow that leads to joy. Um, two weeks ago, you may know, I was not, I was not um, in town. I was in Haiti, and I was out there with uh, several people exploring an opportunity to go to Haiti this coming summer with some of you to do a mission trip. And so we went to Haiti, and we had some great prayer time to launch the trip. And we spent about a week just hanging out in Haiti, praying about, would you have the Woods Edge Student Ministry come here and start doing mission trips long term? Now... Some things about Haiti is, you can see, it's a beautiful place. This is actually the roof of the building that we would be staying at if we go to Haiti. It's this amazing, beautiful compound that these people started this ministry 70 years ago and are still going strong. And you look, just the view, it's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful country. In fact, uh, back in the 1500s, 1600s, it was known as like the, the gym of the Caribbean. It was the wealthiest area in the region, the wealthiest country. Um, it's a beautiful place, but as beautiful as Haiti is, it's also a very broken place. This is just a shot I took out the window to, to, to show the scale, and believe it or not, this is like the nice part of town, but all these buildings are just, they're just cinder blocks stacked on top of each other, and you see all those shades of blue, those are tarps, and those tarps are sometimes serving as their door, sometimes their window, sometimes their roof, and you see all of the sheet metal, like their homes are literally built from stuff they find on the road because they can't afford it. So it's a beautiful place, but it's a broken place. There's a lot of poverty there. The people are also beautiful. Look at these squishies. Oh, my goodness. These are kids that I got to meet, um, what, maybe 30 or 40 of about 1,000 that go to this orphanage that we will partner with. You will literally get to meet some of these kiddos if you go on the trip. And they're just fantastic. They're so excited to see you because they know that when they see Americans show up, that we're only there to help. And so they're beautiful people in Haiti, but there's also very broken people. Um, those kids at that orphanage are like some of the select few that this organization can afford to take from kindergarten through their senior years, where they can feed them and clothe them, um, give them education, because in most cases, the tens and tens of thousands of kids, this is their situation. No school, um, no food, one outfit, um, no shoes. There's beautiful people in Haiti. I mean, they're all beautiful, but there's also a lot of brokenness there. Um, there's a lot of needs in Haiti. There are so many different ways that we can partner with them. I hope that even now, even though the trip won't be for until this summer, that you would begin praying, Lord, would you have me? Go to Haiti this summer on behalf of you and Woods Edge. Um, something else I noticed in Haiti, and I've noticed this in some other countries too, but man, it was kind of a special instance there. The traffic in Haiti is banana sandwiches. The roads are like literally you're taking your life into your own hand every time you drive or walk down them. This is a very typical street in Haiti. Um, this is basically like a Woodlands Parkway. Like this is a high traffic area. And you have mopeds and dump trucks and forerunners and jeeps. And they have these awesome, hand-painted, crafted, unique little taxis that are called, uh, what are they called? They're called like Vroom Vrooms or Go-Go's or something. A very cute name. 
um, but people just hanging off all these vehicles, rolling up and down. And look, there's no lights. There's no stop signs. They just kind of figure it out. And if they see an open stretch of 50 yards, they're just going 70 miles an hour like that. And then they slow down. It's just crazy how anything gets anywhere in that country. And you'll notice, like, there's people everywhere. They're just walking through all the traffic. And right here is just pile of garbage because they don't have sanitation there. So nobody comes and picks up their garbage ever. So they just pile it up. And when it gets big enough, they set it on fire and they burn it. It's a crazy mess of a situation in Haiti when it comes to traffic. I'm going to leave that picture there for a, min a minute. Our last day of the trip, we were driving down the mountain, that green place that you saw before, and we were going to the airport. And when we were traveling in Haiti, there's eight of us, so we had two like Land Rovers that we traveled in, and we never separated. Like We were right up on each other because we want to stay together. And there's no stoplights, so nothing slows us down unless there's people or you know, a cow on the road or something. And so we're going down the mountain. For the first time in our four days there, we, act, we get separated. And we're just like, where are they? But because there's no traffic lights, we're like, well, they got to be right behind us. My vehicle's in the front. We arrive at the airport. No time at all. Um, there's no lines. We're like, yes. But the other vehicle, we can't go through the lines because they have our luggage. So we have to wait for them. And we wait for them for five minutes. And we wait for them for ten minutes. And then we start to get worried because 45 minutes go by and that car never shows up. At about an hour... My friend Joe and Jeff and Don and the driver just show up. And we're like, where have you been? The cell service wasn't good. We couldn't talk to them. They just arrived. And like immediately I was like, they, they don't look right. They don't look like right in the head. Like something's on their mind. And they're like, um, the driver thought we were going back to the old mission site. He didn't realize we were coming to the airport. And he took a wrong turn. And like, we're late. And I'm thinking like, you took a wrong turn. Clearly you knew. Why didn't you say anything? Well, when we got out of the airport and people start checking their bags, I pulled Joe aside, and I'm like, what happened? And Joe, like, almost broke down. He's like, I, I just saw one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. There's this dump truck right in front of us driving down the road, and a moped pulled out with three teenage boys on it, and it just destroyed them. It killed them on the spot. It ran right over them. And then we drove, like, right past them. And so... We saw that we made a wrong turn, but I don't think anybody really realized it because we were like in shock that this horrible thing happened right there. So I don't think it was like 20 minutes after we drove by it that we were like, oh, wait, we're, we're on the wrong road. And then they had to turn around. They had to drive right back by it. And as disturbing as you can imagine that was for Joe and the boys to see that, Joe said, Justin, the, the craziest thing is like none of the Haitians seem to stop or notice. Like this horrible thing happened, and they just – went on with life. They were shopping around them. They were talking to each other around them. They were just waiting for somebody to come and pick them up like nothing happened. You guys, what happens in, in Texas when there's an accident on the road? Does everybody just keep on going with their normal day? Or do they like slow to a crawl and start looking? What's it called in Texas when you're driving and there's an accident? What happens on the road? Rubberneckers. I rubberneck too. You're like, what's going on? I want to see like I-45 when there's an accident, all like whatever, 50 lanes there are, just to a crawl as everybody wants to see the thing, but nobody stopped at this accident. They just kept on moving along like nothing happened. And Joe and I were like talking about that and wondering about that. Joe was deeply disturbed by that. Do they not care? As I was praying about that this week, I just felt like it was something God wanted me to share with you guys, and I think it ties into our sermon. Why is it that the Haitians didn't seem to Americans to mind that this happened? 
Well, I think a big part of it is that for generations, the Haitian people have been living in extreme poverty. Um, here's a shot of this woman in a very typical, nicer-than-most house in Haiti. They don't have sheets for the bed. They don't have closets. They just stack their stuff against the wall. Um, the walls behind the next room are all made of sheet metal. As I already said, most of their home is built from stuff they find on the road that probably flies off the back of their dump truck. They just throw together whatever they can for their living situation. Man, if they can't even afford a house or uh, something to live in, you know they can't afford food either. And when you don't have enough food, if you don't have healthy food, you become malnourished, and death is just very common. I heard a horrible story from the founders of the people that we're going to partner with down there, how their first year in Haiti, there was this little infant baby that was crazy sick. And they're like, you need to give her medical care. We'll let, let us help you take her to the hospital. You, at the very least, need to feed her. And they're like, well, we can't afford to feed her. She, she hasn't eaten in three days. And they're like, why can't you? You can't, like, you guys can't go without food and feed her? What's the deal? They had given all of the money that the family had to a voodoo witch doctor, which is very common in the village, hoping that he, with his demonic power, could heal their child. And he couldn't. And they had no money left to feed the, the baby. And the baby died. That's what we're talking about when we talk about they're used to death in Haiti because they have extreme poverty. They don't have enough food to eat and people dying and malnourishment and not enough food is common. But on top of that, in 2010, you had that 5.2 earthquake that happened at the, at the epicenter of the country. And they're in t I mean, when you build your whole town on cinder blocks and an earthquake happens, it's not just going to move. It's going to fall down. It's going to crush people. We drove past a giant mound on a hillside, and they're like, you see that mound, and it just stands out, and you're like, yes, that's the mass grave of 300,000 people that died the day of the earthquake. They're very used to death in Haiti recently because of that earthquake, because of famine, and then just a few short years later, Hurricane Matthew rolls through as they're barely trying to get back on their feet and wipes out all the crops, all the harvest in a day, and 35,000 people are homeless in a day, right as winter is setting in, the Haitians, I don't think they responded to the brokenness of these boys dead on the road, because brokenness is just a part of life for them. Pain and sorrow and death, they realize, and they have constant reminders on a daily basis, is an inescapable part of life for them. They walk through it and around it every day. But we don't do that. We actually go the opposite direction uh, with vigor. Um, we pretend here in America, here in this society, that bad things don't happen. Um, we go out of our way to avoid pain, and we just straight up ignore death here in most instances. A perfect example that's only a couple years old is, you guys know this place. What's that place? Market Street. You guys know our little slice of utopia, Market Street. There's Tommy Bahamas. They have really good goat cheese. So here's Tommy Bahamas and Market Street and this beautiful sunset. Um, imagine that swarming with people and cars and white tents and people like me selling art. So twice a year, Market Street hosts a fine art festival, and I will participate that um, on a regular basis. And one year, as I'm in my little 10 by 10 tent, selling art and talking to people about Jesus. The streets are slammed with folks. Um, it's the dinner hour, so people are shopping and having fun and eating and drinking wine, and there's Ferraris everywhere, and everybody's just enjoying themselves. 
And as Brooke and I are hanging out and talking to customers, this man walked by our tent. And believe me, there were thousands of people out there. But this one man walked by our tent, and Brooke noticed him. Brooke felt burdened for him. And Brooke, for no reason, just, I feel like I'm supposed to pray for that guy, started praying for this kind of tormented man that walked by our tent in this mass of people. We would find out later he walked just a couple tents down. He got into his car. He shot and killed himself right there in Market Street where thousands of people are. Because of the noise and because of the activity, nobody saw it happen. But somebody noticed that he'd done it. And Market Street's response, and I know the people that run the place, they're good folks. They go and they get all these false walls that they use for gardening, and they put them all around his car so nobody can see that somebody just committed suicide amidst this party atmosphere. And very quietly, a few minutes later, this ambulance drives up, and they adjust the thing, and they slowly move his body into the ambulance, and it drives away, and nobody saw anything as they hid the fact that this man had just taken his own life. You wouldn't have read about it in the papers. You didn't see it on the news that somebody committed suicide amongst about 10,000 people hanging out, having a good time, because we have made it um, our mission to hide the bad stuff in life and pretend like everything is great. We get home at the end of the day, we lower our garage door, and we're like, everything's fine, but there's so much brokenness here that we want to numb. Um, we've gotten really good at hiding our hurt, stifling our sorrow, and ignoring death. What does God say about death? What does he say in the Bible that we should have a mindset regarding death? Well, a great example is in Ecclesiastes 7. It's a powerful, profound, um, contemplative, worthy verse. The day that you die is better than the day you are born. It is better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. For after all, everybody dies. So the living, and that's us, we should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. And a wise person thinks a lot about death, while fools only think about having a good time. There are some of you in this room that are so full of sadness and so full of brokenness, and you live in a place that says, hide it, stifle it, and here's God saying, hey, it's, no, it's okay. It's actually, it's a healthy thing to think about. You, you get wise when you think about it. You should think about it because you're going to die. There's a passage in the Bible that says no one can avoid that dark obligation. We're all going to die. We should consider it. We should think about it. As a father of children, I think about the fact that one day I will die, and will I have left my kids an appropriate legacy of Jesus Christ? You guys, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging we live in a broken world and thinking about your own sorrow. If you've been hiding your sorrow and your pain for the love of God, will you stop? Just acknowledge, I'm, I'm hurt. I don't, I don't feel good in my heart. And talk about it. All God wants from you when it comes to your hurt is to be honest with him. I've been reading and, and our staff has been reading and we've been so privileged to read and pray through your prayer requests that you guys leave up here every week. We're so impressed with your authenticity and your vulnerability in here. Um, but as I've been reading and praying through your prayer requests, myself and my staff have been realizing there's, there's a lot of pain in this room. There's a lot of sorrow represented in your prayer requests, therefore represented in your lives. There's a lot of confusion and fear in you, and I get it. I realize it, and it's okay. 
But something I've been noticing is that there's a lot of language in your prayer request that makes it clear to me that you, you just want to escape your pain. You just want to avoid anything that hurts. And I understand that, but because we're a ministry that challenges you from a perspective of verses like Ecclesiastes to change the way that you think, it's not a healthy or biblical thing to escape everything that hurts you and to run from anything that could harm you. Um, brokenness is an unavoidable part of life. There is no escaping. As long as we're down here, until we get to heaven, you will get hurt. You will suffer. You will die. And it's something that we should talk about and think about. As 1 Peter 4 says, and just hear God saying this to you right now, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through. If you have any fear in your life, if you have any pain, any sorrow, anything that's hurt you, that's your fiery trial. And God is saying to you, don't be surprised. As if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. So that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the whole world. If you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. God is saying to us this morning, are you suffering? Good. Because suffering can and will drive you to Jesus Christ, which is, that's why we exist, to go to the Lord. Suffering should be used, we should use our suffering, we should change the way that we think about our suffering to drive us to the cross of Christ. And along the way, learn to suffer well. Here's what God says about your sorrow, pain, and death this morning, whatever it might be. There is beauty in it. There's beauty in your brokenness. Every one of you, I don't care what your brokenness is. I don't care what your sin is. There's beauty in there if you pursue Jesus in it. There's wisdom in your brokenness. And there are blessings in your brokenness. There are blessings so close to you, I feel like they could almost grab it and just touch it right now. To... Prove my point. I want to share a story with you guys today. This testimony that I mentioned earlier. Um, seven years ago, Brooke and I, Brooke Bear's over there still. Brooke Bear, hey babe, pink hair. That's mine. Um, Brooke and I had Wyatt. Really, I say Brooke and I. It was mostly her. Um, Brooke and I had Wyatt, and that was a very difficult pregnancy for Brooke. It, from from the minute she got pregnant, she was sick. She was laying down. She was uncomfortable. Um, the birth itself at the hospital was very difficult, and we had a first difficult year, year and a half of Wyatt just being alive. He was super clingy. He didn't want to have anything to do with anybody. He just wanted to hold on to mom all day, every day, and that was very taxing for her. It's hard to sleep when you have a one-year-old that's just like, um, from start to finish. It was just it was challenging. It was hard. It was a trial. Add to that a lot of ongoing health issues. I mean, from the top down, Brooke, Brooke wrestles with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and that is very challenging. But then as a result of giving birth to Wyatt, her reproductive system changed. Apparently it changes every time you give birth to another kid. And she started developing cysts on her, was it ovaries? Ovaries. Um, and when you have a cyst as a woman growing on your ovaries, it jacks with your hormones. And so out of nowhere, you can just feel like a demon. I love you. Um, 
and they would just really control her day with anger or depression or, you know, insert ugly emotion here because she was super uncomfortable. And then those things would grow and they would burst inside of her. And you can't imagine the pain. I mean, she'd just be like, down. It was bad. It was miserable. Um, so even though originally Brooke and I had always planned on having four kids, when we first got married, we talked about a family, we're going to have four, we decided that after Wyatt, as a result of all this stuff, like, we're done. Brooke's just like, closed. And I'm like, that's fine. So no more kids after Wyatt. And that was the decision we made because it, it helped us out. We just kind of accepted the fact that this is just the way it is. Um, and yet, five years later, which is two years ago right now, several things happened to us in a short time. The first one is we had a small group leader named Grant Akinfinwa who had a gift of prophecy. He would come up to you and be like, I was praying about you and I feel like God said this. And a week, a month, a year later, like the thing would happen. So when he comes up to you and says, I was praying for you and I feel like God said this, you take note. Well, Grant came up to us and I have grown used to the fact that we're done having kids. I'm liking the way that our life looks as my kids are growing older and no more diapers and all that stuff. And he comes up and he goes, I feel like the Lord told me you guys are going to have a son in two years. And I'm just like, why don't you back off, Grant? But he says, I feel like the Lord told me you're going to have a son. He tells this to me and Brooke. And I'm just like, what? No way. But we know that Grant has said things like this before, and they've happened. And so we had to take it to heart that maybe, maybe, we're, maybe we're not done. Another thing that happened was that during some healing prayer time for Brooke, and again, she's got physical issues, emotional issues, OCD. I mean, God, I got plenty of issues too, but we're praying and she feels like she hears the Lord say to her clearly in prayer, I will heal you. I'm like, okay, like now? Tomorrow? Like when? Well, he didn't say, but he said, I will heal you to Brooke. And that caught our attention. And then right after that, um, we're, we're going to the doctor about these cysts, and they, they're like, this, we'll try this medicine, and it doesn't work. We'll try this over here, it doesn't work. And finally, the doctor's like, okay, we got two options. We can do invasive surgery and just see if that fixes it. Like, we'll literally just cut her open and see what happens. Like, oh, that sounds great, doctor. Or you can just get pregnant again. Her system will reboot like an Apple computer, and maybe they'll go away. Which I'm equally like, we're just going to like jumpstart the car? Like, that's, that's a thing, but it's a thing. So we got these three things tied up with new life and healing and possibly a pregnancy. And so I go to the Lord as the head of the household, and I'm like, are, are you trying to tell us that we're supposed to have another son? Are we supposed to get pregnant is what I asked. And I felt like God gave me a resounding yes. So by faith, not our best idea. I wanted to be done having kids at that stage because I'm, you know, in my 40s now. We're like, all right, let's, let's try for another baby, which that, was, that part was fine. So we get pregnant, and we get pregnant around what? We found out on Friday of Freedom Weekend this past year that we were pregnant. We told you guys at Freedom, hey, we found out this morning we're pregnant. And everybody cheered and prayed, it was great. We get pregnant, um, and we name our unborn son Canaan Joshua. This name has meaning for us. We uh, Brooke prayed through this, and this is the name we chose for our unborn son. Eight weeks into our pregnancy, after getting pregnant because we felt like God told us to, we miscarried, and Canaan died. And we were devastated. We were full of sorrow. We were full of pain. Death had, had touched our family. 
um, it felt like the rug had literally been pulled out from underneath me. I mean, you ever go into a situation, you're expecting something good, and then something horrible happens? Like, that's how we felt to the nth degree. It was, we would say later, the hardest thing we've ever had to go through. The day that we lost Canaan, I was very confused. I was very hurt, and I was very broken. And after we got home from the clinic that confirmed that he was gone, I got Brooke situated, and, and, and she fell asleep in tears. And when I knew that, okay, she's safe, I went out, and I sat on my back porch, and I just went to God, and I'm like, what is the deal? Um, before I share my quiet time with you, I feel like the Lord wants me to ask you right now, and if you need to, grab your pen and paper, but what is your go-to response when something bad happens to you? Just ask the Lord right now, like, what, what is my go-to response? I, I have some examples that probably touch on some of you, but maybe when something bad happens that you don't want to deal with, you just... Take some drugs. You self-medicate. You, you go and raid the liquor cabinet. I get it. I was a teenager. I did those things. Maybe when something bad happens that you don't want to deal with, you eat. You just go to the fridge and you're just like, Rrr. or maybe you like abandon food and you don't eat anything. Just as bad. Uh, maybe when you're hurt and you don't want to deal, you cut. Um, I used to punch a punching bag when I got hurt. When my, my girlfriend broke up with me, I spent a lot of time hitting a heavy bag, and I would, like, intentionally drag my hand down to cut up my hand so that I would feel pain, and so people would ask me about it. Super unhealthy, but I did that. Um, maybe you shop. Maybe you game. Maybe um, me, a big one, is I complain. I complain like there's no end. Um, Jesus, heal me of complaints. But, yeah, I complain and take my problem and make it way bigger, and then I take my negativity and I, I vomit it on other people, and it just goes... What's your go-to response when you're hurt and you want to cop out? Just own what it is. Just acknowledge it between you and the Lord. If you want to, write it down. I'll tell you that without Jesus Christ in my life, when I lost my son, I would have bottled up the pain and I would have gone straight to my garage or the bar and I would have started drinking. That was my go-to response for a decade. I probably would have cursed the name of God. I don't know how people go through death without knowing Jesus loves you and that he's a savior and you get to see him in his but that's my go-to response. Bottle it up, get drunk, curse God. Um, but instead, because I have a relationship with Jesus, and I've seen him do miracles, even in hard stuff, as soon as Brooke was safe in bed, I did the only thing that I could do. I did the only thing that any of us should do. I took all my junk and pain and confusion, and I went and I prayed about it. The best thing that I could have done. It took me 20 minutes to sit on the back porch and ask God about my pain. And in 20 minutes, he changed the way that I thought. He changed my whole perspective. Thank God for the gift of prayer. January 25th, 5 p.m. on my back porch. Here's an excerpt of my quiet time. Lord, Canaan, Joshua is gone. And it seems that the little boy that you moved us to name for the promised land simply couldn't wait to get there. As a result of that, at least, I'm thankful that Canaan will never get sick, he will never break a bone, Canaan will never know hurt or hurt another or sin in any way. I'm so thankful that Canaan is with you, but we are so sad that he couldn't spend more time here with us. Where do we go from here? How would you have me walk through this? And by faith, I just opened my Bible and I trusted the power of the Spirit to to identify something on the page that I landed on to speak to my hurt. 
and I couldn't have landed at a better place. 2 Samuel 12, David's advisors are coming to him after his child, his son, had just died. And they say, David says to them, is the child dead? He's been fasting, he's been praying, he's been weeping that his child would live. Is the child dead? Yes, they replied to David, your child is dead. Then David got up from the ground and he washed himself. He anointed himself. He changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and he worshipped the Lord. And after that, he returned to the palace and he was served food and he ate it. His advisors were stunned. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and you refused to eat. Now the child's dead, and you've stopped your mourning and are eating again? And David replied, I fasted and I wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast now that he is gone? Why should I fast now that the bad thing has happened? Can I bring my son back again? No. I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. And this is what God said to me after that. That first day, I, I literally known for about an hour and a half that my son is dead. It says, David then comforted his wife, slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Right from the get-go, he's like, try again. I finished my prayer. You are God, and you are good, and we love you, and we trust you, and we look to you. Do not let our weeping, our sorrow, and our pain hinder our worship. Redeem our suffering, reward our faith, refresh our hearts, heal my bride. We thank you for the hope that we have in you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of bringing Joshua, and thank you for the assurance that I'm going to see him again. Losing Canaan makes me think this week of the song that we dissected just two weeks ago, where over and over Jesus is saying, stay with me, you don't need to run, because man, that day I wanted to run, but Jesus is like, just come sit with me, come talk to me about how you're feeling, it's going to be okay, there's other stuff going on that you can't see yet. So instead of running, I prayed and I asked those questions, instead of running from our brokenness, which our society has hardwired us to do, we embraced our brokenness. What would it look like if you embraced your brokenness today? That thing you're afraid of? That thing you've been running from and tripping and getting hurt more? Well, one week, less than a week after that broken moment, after I was so tempted to just bolt, one week later, I talked to God about this idea that he gave me of try again. This was on Wednesday, January 31st, six days later. It was my morning quiet time over at Starbucks. Good morning, Father. Thank you for today. I pray again for healing for Brooke. You told her you would heal her. Our doctor said a pregnancy could set things right. I don't know the exact healing that Brooke needs, but you do. And we hold her healing in faith. And we have followed you here in faith. And we live by faith because you are faithful. So heal Brooke. Heal her hormones. Heal her reproductive system. Heal her mind, heal her heart, transform my wife into your fruitful grapevine who flourishes within our home. We cannot do these things, but you can. Tomorrow is Brooke's 33rd birthday, and she still has 
a strong desire to try to go child. And based on 2 Samuel 12, I feel like you could already be calling us down that road. And what's more, Grant Akinfenwa's word over us seemed to indicate not just a pregnancy, but a son in our life. All of your promises for 2018 seem to point to life, fruitfulness, and new things. And it just doesn't feel right that the story would end in Canaan's death. Doesn't death lead to new life? Didn't your own son die that we may experience life and life to the full? So speak to me and lead me to your best for us. And once again, I just open my Bible by faith and I just trust him that God would lead me to a, a story or a, a word or a passage that would speak to this question. And I open my Bible to Psalm 46. And it said, God is our refuge. God is our strength. Always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. Man, I needed to hear that that week. Bring it on because I've got Jesus in my corner. Yes, Lord, you are God. Whether in light or dark, good times or bad, peace or panic, we know that you are our God. And so we look to you and we trust you and we fix our thoughts on you and we fear not. We fear nothing. We praise you. Psalm 46 went on. A river brings joy to the city of our God, the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed. And from the very break of day, God will protect it. The nations are in chaos. Their kingdoms are crumbling. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. I prayed, you are God no matter what. We will follow you no matter what. Death has touched us. The seed has fallen to the earth and died. I pray for new life to spring up as a result. Bless our sacrifice. Bless Canaan's sacrifice. We obeyed you. Now bless our obedience for the glory of your name. We will follow you. We will serve you. Our lives are tied to you, and everyone knows it. So honor us. Not for us, for you. Our souls have been deeply troubled. Now bring glory to your name. Flood our hearts and our lives. Confirm for me that you will give us a son named Joseph. And I open my Bible one more time to Revelation 22. The angel showed me a river with the waters of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the river flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river were trees of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal. I just responded, come Holy Spirit. And so we tried again, and we got pregnant again last week after miscarrying. And in less than two months from right now, really a more like a month, month and a half, my wife is going to give birth to River, River Bain Ulmer. She's going to give birth to a son, and we can't wait to meet him. And we can't wait for you 
to meet him because his story is tied up with this ministry, your ministry, your story. Um, but River would not exist. He would not be here. He would not be growing right now and probably kicking Brooke in the bladder right now. He would not be here if we had run from our brokenness, if we had fled our pain, if we had stifled it, if we had turned our back on God and be like, thanks for nothing. He wouldn't be here. The blessings wouldn't be here. The, the wisdom that we've garnered from this experience wouldn't be here if we had fled. God is saying to every single one of you in this room right now that there is beauty in your brokenness. Whatever it is, there's beauty in it. There's wisdom in your brokenness. There is blessings in your broken. That thing that you hate in your life, do you know that there's blessings like so close right now? Here's some of the beauty, wisdom, and blessings that we found in losing our son, Cain. Um, it has reminded us that God is God and we are not. We, we have ideas about how our life should go, but they are not always God's ideas. God's way wins out, and thank God for it. His ways are better than ours. They're higher than ours. I would rather do things God's way, even when it hurts, than my way, which destroys. We've learned that through losing Canaan. We have learned that we have a deeper empathy and well of compassion for you from losing our son. Because you guys have faced things in, our, in your life that we hadn't seen yet. We've never been so close to death as when we lost Canaan. But now we can relate more to you when you lose somebody. That's a pretty awesome win from doing things God's way, from suffering well. We can relate to people who have miscarried. I had no idea that miscarriage was so common. People miscarry all the time. And when we shared our testimony on social media, hey, this happened to us, we're praying, please pray with us. People were coming out of the woodwork. I miscarried, I've never told a soul. Thank you for your courage. I want to share my testimony. I miscarried and I can't reconcile it, but you have, what'd you do? We get to pray with those people. Thank God for that. Um, the biggest win for me is that we have a son right now in heaven that I will get to meet the day that I die. The day that I walk through the gates. The day that Brooke does. The, the day Wyatt or Charlotte does. There's Jesus, and right over his shoulder is going to be Cain and Joshua. And he's going to be like, let me show you around. I can't imagine how good that's, how good that's going to be. I know it's real. I, can't, I almost can't wait. Like, take me there. Some of the beauty, wisdom, and blessings that we've found in losing Canaan are tied just to his name. We named him for the promised land, for this promise of a new thing. And yet we didn't even know this part of his story. It didn't click for us. But after he died, Brooke realized, made the connection, that the Canaan in the Bible, who we named our son after, did you know he had to die in order for his brother to live? sacrifice his own life so his brother could exist and live. The Canaan in, the, in our life had to go to make way for River. And who knows how it's going to all work out in the end if Canaan didn't have to die in Brooke's womb so that she could be healed. I don't know. I mean, the doctors, how much do they know? Just have another baby, you'll be Like, that's modern medicine? Are you serious? But maybe, maybe that's how God is going to heal Brooke. Some of the beauty and wisdom and blessings that we found in having River Bain and being pregnant with him that we're still finding is that we know that River, beyond the shadow of a doubt, is a gift from God. Like, 
I have been so excited in my life for Charlotte's pregnancy and arrival and Wyatt's. But man, River is like God anointed, like God has spoken to us and walked with us all through the way. Like he's a blessing from God. I can't wait to meet them. God has used River to remind us that God keeps his promises. He said he'd give us a son. And we are like, what, is it two years to the month that Grant spoke that prophecy and we're about to have a son? It's close. I'm sure of it. God gave us a confirmation of healing and new life through the arrival of River. And I love this. God has given us that fourth child that we always wanted. Yeah, we don't get to meet Canaan until heaven, but we got four kids, which we always felt like we were supposed to have. And River's number four. And the significance of River's name, you know, from Psalm 46 and Revelation 22, but his middle name, Bane, which is awesome. In Aramaic, the name Bane means son of the prophet, and he is a son of mine that was prophesied through multiple avenues. It also means son of my consolation. Before he was born, God knew that he was going to have to give us a consolation for losing Canaan, and we named him that as a result. There's even beauty and wisdom and blessings in when River's going to be born this coming month. Brooke found this out. It blew my mind. The birthstone for November when River's going to be born is a stone called citrine. Here's a picture of it. Ding! There's the necklace I got for Brooke Bear. Um, she's wearing it right now. Citrine is created when amethyst is exposed to extreme heat. Citrine is something that's created from amethyst, and amethyst has to go through extreme pressure and heat to create citrine. Brooke's birthstone is amethyst, and she has been in a pressure cooker of life and struggle this year, and it's produced citrine. Citrine is also the commemorative stone for the 13th year of marriage, which Brooke and I are in right now. Citrine is considered the healing stone, which is what we've been praying for through the whole process. You guys, none of that would we get to learn about, appreciate, enjoy, pray through if we hadn't been willing to embrace our brokenness, focus on Jesus, and walk through it. Imagine the blessings that God has like laid out before you right now if you will stop running from your sorrow and pain and just look at Jesus and walk through it and trust that he's got your best in mind. Bailey, you guys can come take the stage. We're going to close out our sermon by praying. I encourage you guys to grab your brown note cards right now and a pen, and you're just going to write a prayer to the Lord the way we've been doing for weeks. Job chapter 7, 11 Job, who knew sorrow and suffering and pain and death like few people in the history of the world, wrote, I cannot keep from speaking. I must express my anguish. My bitter soul must complain. Job acknowledged, I hurt and I need to talk about it with you, Lord. Every one of you in this room hurts somewhere and you just need to talk about it with the Lord. I want you one more time on your card, just own what your brokenness is, what your pain is, what your sorrow is. Is there anything in this life that you are trying to, thinking you should run from? Just own it. Just admit it. Just write it down. Take some of the power back from the enemy and just, yes, I'm afraid 
that I don't even know what believing in God means. I'm afraid of going to school tomorrow and seeing her. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me when I go home. I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to say no to my temptation. Like, I don't care what it is. You know what it is. Admit it and own it and just write it down. But instead of praying today, God, give me a way out. God, help me escape. God, make it go away. I want us to not just change the way that we think about our sorrow. I want us to change the way that we pray. Instead of asking God to get rid of it for you, why don't you ask God this morning one of three questions? Ask God right now, if this is your question, Lord, this is what I don't want. This is what I'm afraid of. What do you want me to learn about you in this situation? God, what do you want me to learn about you? Because I have to walk through this. Show me something about who you are. Maybe right now God is going to say to you, you don't need to be afraid. I'm your shepherd. I'm the guardian of your soul. I've been with you since the beginning. I've never stepped away. Maybe God just wants to speak words of life over you that you wouldn't know if you just bailed and ran. Just ask God, what do you want me to learn about you in this trial? Question number two. You could ask, Lord, what do you want me to learn about me, about myself in this trial. Maybe God's going to say to you, you are stronger than you think. You are better than you think of yourself. You can do this. You've got this. You're more than a conqueror. You're not garbage. You're my prince. You're my princess. God, what do you want me to learn about myself in the midst of this pain, this sorrow? You ask him that, he will answer you. He will show you a picture. He will give you a word. And if you want to, you can just ask for a practical step. Lord, how do you want me to respond to this today? How do you want me to walk through this? What's my next step? I get that I can't just bail that you have something for me in this, but what can I do? What's my next step? I'm going to pray for us. And whether you want to walk through all three of those questions as I pray, or one, just talk to God about it. Be honest about it. Change the way that you've been praying about your sorrow and your pain. There's blessing in this. There's a lesson in this. It's, it's in maybe closer than you think if you would just accept it and embrace it. Jesus, as we respond today, we thank you that we have a variety of ways to do so. I pray you would bless all that take communion today and just remind us of the reality that the brokenness that we have to walk through, you walked it through at first. You went all the way to the cross. You died for us. You don't call us to walk through anything that you didn't walk through first. And you showed us how to do it. Gently, peacefully, eyes on the Father. Knowing that even if we die, we win because we get to be with you. Bless communion today. Bless our offerings today. As we maybe bring some of the paper folded up in the back of our pocket. But man, we don't need that near as much as we need you. Bless our tithes and offerings as we give these prayers and leave them in the tithe box and just say, I I'm just surrendering my fear to you today, Lord. Bless our worship as we sing truth. God, we just acknowledge you love it when people praise you when they're in pain. You love it when people worship you when they're weary and just ready to quit. You love that. You bless that. So transform us as we sing in joy from a place of pain. Lord, I pray for boldness 
for fearlessness, for refreshment. I pray you would encourage everyone in this room. You are with us. You are for us. You are leading us somewhere good. Somewhere that once we've walked through, you will use us to minister to other people who struggled with the same thing. Give us the bravery to own our hurt, to surrender it to you, to suffer these fiery trials well. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.